a whitewater park is not a pure restoration project, but what it is, is it's, it, it can provide some restoration elements while bringing people to the river in a positive way and giving people safe access to the river, which then creates an army of river advocates, you know? So I look at it too, as like, there's a social component to it where, you know, for a lot of people, you got to touch and feel and experience that river in order to really love it in the way you need to, to make good decisions in the future about protecting it. I think whitewater parks and board sports on rivers are just, I don't think, I know they're just growing the, the population of river users exponentially. And I think that'll just continue. There's all kinds of now surf waves all over, Pe- lots of people interested. I mean, who doesn't want to be a surfer, right? There's a reason why there's a there's a reason why there's a packed sun in every mall in the Midwest. It's because even, you know, people want to wear board shorts and be surfer. I mean, it's, the, it's arguably one of the most iconic things in our culture. What's up, everyone? I'm Paul Clark. What's up, Paul? Wednesday, May 27th. I'm on the Lower Deschutes River. But in this episode, we're talking to Mike Harvey in Salida, Colorado. Mike is one of the principal builders of river board sports by building whitewater parks. He's a designer, building the brand of Badfish, and building one of the most respected river board teams in the industry. You know the names of Mike Tavares, Brittany Parker, but if you don't know the name behind those people and all those things, it's Mike Harvey. Welcome to the podcast, Mike. Hey, Paul. Thank you. Thanks for having me. How's life in Salida, Colorado right now? Oh, buddy, these are the salad days in Salida, Colorado. We got, uh, <laughs> it's like 75 degrees. The river's running over a thousand CFS. And um, yeah, it's just awesome right now. This is the, the the months that we live for here, you know. And I appreciate you quoting Raising Arizona with the salad <laughs> days. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I, I figured you were, we were the same generation. That one would, <laughs> wouldn't go over your head. <laughs> Salida is probably the epicenter for river board sports because of the Salida wave. You helped design and build that park at the same time you helped build the brand Badfish with your business partner, Zach. Uh, tell us a little bit about your your bio. Sure. Um, I, I moved to the Arkansas River Valley when I was 18 years old, six days after I graduated from high school. I um, I'd planned to come to, I have a lot of family from Colorado. Um, I, I was uh, raised in Cleveland, Ohio. And, um, and so I had planned to go to school at Colorado State and I had an advisor uh, friend and who became a friend, a teacher in high school uh, who was kind of took me under his wing. And he used to come out to the Arkansas River and raft guide in the summers. And uh, so he was like, hey, you should come with me. You're coming out to go to school there anyway. And I was like, sounds great. Didn't know anything about whitewater paddling at all. Uh, this is uh, June of 1993. Mm-hmm. And so I, uh, I loaded up a uh, Subaru wagon because I'm a cliche. And uh, <laughs> I just drove to drove to Buena Vista and got a job rafting and learned to kayak like four or five days after I got there or started trying to learn and basically was like, yeah, I'll probably just go ahead and do this the rest of my life. Like I just was, you know, the people, the whole, the sport, the, um, just being on the river every day. I got, my eyes got open to so many possibilities and I just, I don't know. I felt like I'd found my, my thing, you know? And so, um, so I, I, I spent summers guiding, um, went, went to college, actually owned a raft company for a short period of time mm-hmm. while I was in college and just got really into whitewater kayaking. That was my driving passion, you know, so 
kayaked all over the place. That's how Zach and I, my business partner, became friends. We were uh, kayaking buddies. And basically, in the late 90s, um, decided to settle in Salida. At the time, Salida was really like the last undiscovered mountain town in Colorado. So it was a place that a dirtbag like me could afford to buy a house. <laughs> Those days have since passed. but so At least settled. you've established yourself there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I'm fortunate in that way. But so we... we uh, moved here full time. And what I realized right away was that, you know, if I was going to um, continue to be as avid a whitewater paddler I was, and then try to have some sort of domestic existence too, that I was going to need a uh, access to whitewater right in downtown Salida. And so the story of Salida is that Salida sits right in the middle of the upper Arkansas river Valley. We're in the middle of 80 miles of world-class whitewater. Um, but Salida itself was the uh, railroad town. The railroad built this town. And the river corridor in Salida was impacted by that historic industry and having the rail yard. We had 100-acre rail yard on one side of the river, the town on the other. And so downtown Salida, despite being in the middle of this world-class whitewater, uh, the Arkansas River running through downtown Salida was a sort of a almost like a flood control ditch. It was just... Uh, rip-wrapped banks with old concrete debris, you know, very little interesting definition in the river, um, you know, and and then people put up fences and walls and, it, and the river was out our back door, you know, it was like, I got interested in whitewater parks because uh, this is uh, 1999. In 1996, the, really the first true public whitewater park was completed in Golden, Colorado mm-hmm. on Clear Creek by uh, Gary Lacey. That Golden Park really opened my eyes as a whitewater kayaker because it was it, it showed kind of the what, to me what the future could be where we could have these accessible river parks, you know, um, that you could go get a paddle in without ever having to run shuttle. And, you know, and I was like, man, this is a perfect fit for me. You know, I need to go, I need to be able to go bang out uh, 40 minutes of paddling and have nobody really know <laughs> I was gone, you know? And, uh, <laughs> And so I was like, well, Slida seems like a perfect place to have a whitewater park. And what we have in Slida is a, a long, long tradition of whitewater paddling that goes back uh, actually into the late 1940s. And so historically, people had pushed rocks around kind of, you know, sort of on a like at just an ad hoc basis over that period of time in order to make a slalom course and, you know, these sorts of things. But remodifying the hydrology. Yeah, just yeah, just kind of pushing things around and, and seeing what happened at high water and it would get blown out and whatever. You know, there's a tradition of that in a few places in Colorado. Slida was one of them. But I, I saw that what I saw at Golden was the whole package, the town integrated into the river corridor, bank improvements, access, trees. You know, I saw how the connection could be made in a bigger sense than just having some weirdos down in a ditch, you know, catching <laughs> eddies. You know, and so I actually uh I reached out to uh, Gary Lacey and um, I what really what happened was I started a process of trying to raise some money and get a permit and you could never do what I did that year in 1999 now I mean everyone's too savvy now and the regulatory agencies would never give you a permit based on the flimsy designs that I did <laughs> but I, I just sort of was winging it and I managed to get a, a, a US Army Corps of Engineers permit and we were going to go in in the spring of 2000 and, and build this one drop structure to make a play hole for kayaking. And um, basically what happened, Paul, is I got to um, I got to the point where I actually got a contractor, a local contractor, to agree to donate all the rocks and all the equipment. 
we had a funny conversation where this guy was patiently listening to me, like, you know, all manic and jacked up on caffeine, explain this whole concept <laughs> of what I was going to do. And then this old guy said at the end of the conversation, he goes, well, how much money do you have? And I was like, well, I don't have any money. And the guy didn't miss a beat. His name was Fred Lowry. He's turned into a mentor for me. He's like, well, we can do that. You know? So this guy agreed, agreed to do this project for, for donate all the Iraq, all the equipment. So the excavator came down to the boat ramp, giant pile of rock. I have no background in, in before this, I had no background in heavy equipment or excavation or anything. And Paul, <laughs> Paul I freaked out. I was like, what am I doing? This is insane. I'm going to kill people. I can't, I can't do this project. I don't, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> I just kind of made it up. And so I, I managed to get Gary Lacey's home number because I knew he designed the golden park. And I was like, maybe this guy can save me. Hail Mary. <laughs> so I called him a week before construction and to his credit, he had, he had uh, grown up coming to Salida. He lives in Boulder, Colorado. He'd grown up coming to Salida. His dad is a whitewater pioneer, was a whitewater pioneer uh, in the state of Colorado and, um, so he'd grown up, you know, racing here in Salida at our Fibar race and his dad. Had, and so he was like, look, I'll be down there tomorrow. And he came down and he gave me some advice. He actually was getting ready to go on spring break with his kids. So he, he couldn't actually hang out for the construction of that first feature, but he really gave me the confidence to go for it. And we, we started the project then. And I also started a relationship with Gary then. So we, Shortly after that, we started, he kind of brought me under his wing and we started working together. And, uh, that's been, it's been 20 years now. I've been working with him doing, um, whitewater parks all over North America, but the Salida project was how I got started right here in my hometown. And we did, we basically, the main phases of the project were done between 2000 and 2010. Um, and we did it in three main phases, uh, including getting, um, grants from the state of Colorado and raising the money and, I mean, it's a, it's a giant story, but the bottom mm -hmm. line is we, we actually just rebuilt one of the waves uh, this last this last fall um, that we're all surfing on now. So it's been I, I've just been really fortunate to be able to have this project here in my hometown that I can, you know, work on in a professional way. But also it's like it, it means so much more to me, obviously, because my kids grew up down there, all my friends, kids. And so I kind of just work closely with the city of Salida to make sure that we keep the park up that we add to the park when it makes sense, you know, and stay on the city's radar in terms of budgeting money to do things. And so the Salida park's been a huge part of my life and a huge learning experience for me, but some, you know, I've done parks and well, we did the park in Buena Vista, Buena mm -hmm. Vista, Colorado upstream, um, a park in Dayton, Ohio was a big project mm -hmm. for me. Uh, I'm currently working on one in New Hampshire, which is really exciting because it'll be kind of the first, real um whitewater park in the northeast so that's that's exciting too it's not just moving rocks around it's it's creating an ecosystem uh it's rehab it's a, it's a it's a river conservation project it's an economic project you're revitalizing towns as you're doing it and you're building a culture around that and so I asked you originally what uh, what came first, the chicken or the egg, oh, yeah, the, yeah. the the whitewater park, the surf wave in Salida or badfish. Uh, tell us about the origin story of badfish, which sounds like yeah. it's at the same time as the Salida wave. I mean, it is in a lot of ways. Yeah. I mean, the, the so from um, 2000 to the late to later 2000s, um, you know, I, my focus was kayaking, whitewater kayaking. I mean, stand up paddling maybe hit, you know, I don't know, some people maybe say 2005 is around the birth date of what we consider modern stand up paddling. But I certainly wasn't aware of it until around 2008. Um, 
And uh, what happened is I, I built a park in Pueblo, Colorado, and one of the waves turns into a big green surf wave and when the water's up in the spring. And uh, I was down there just doing an inspection of the project, and I saw a couple guys um, surfing, and they were just guys that had you know, moved to Pueblo for whatever reason, but were from somewhere on the coast, and they had surfboards in their garage, and they were like, hey, it looks like we could surf that. So they were surfing it. <laughs> and I immediately called my buddy Zach because Zach um, – you know, grew up in San Diego and I knew he was a surfer. And like any good kid that grew up skating and snowboarding, I always wished I was a surfer, but I'm not, <laughs> you know, I wasn't. And so, uh, you know, I called him up and I was like, Hey, you know, I was certainly aware that river surfing existed. Um, you know, I'd seen it on uh, the big sur wave in Colorado or the um, lunch counter in Jackson, but it was always to me like a kind of an odd niche thing that seemed, you know, difficult. And so I called Zach and I said, Hey, these guys are surfing this wave in Pueblo. We should grab all his boards in your garage, come down here and try this. So we did, we went down there around maybe 2007 or so. And boy, I was terrible. You know, I mean, I just couldn't <laughs> do it at all. I mean, I had, I had those skills to get out of the eddy and get onto the wave, but I, you know, I could barely surf. I mean, just hadn't done it, you know, and Zach ripped right away. But literally on that drive home from that very first session, he was like, you know, Zach's got the kind of design brain and kind of a, like an engineer's mind where he was right away thinking, well, these boards could be a lot better, you know, and there's something, something just isn't quite working right. Like the feeling that I think I should be feeling, I'm not feeling it. And so he learned to shape surfboards on YouTube and started shaping boards in his garage, um, out of blue board home insulation. Mm -hmm. And so he was making these boards and he, he started calling them bad fish. And the reason was, is that he based them on, um, a classic fish shape, from the ocean that he'd grown up surfing kind of sloppy surf in Southern California, um, on these fish. And he thought, well, like a fish is what would work well in the river. Cause this is kind of mushier surf. And so, so he called them bad fish cause they were like mutant fish boards, you know? <laughs> and so, um, they were thicker and shorter and, you know, weird. And so he made these boards and he was actually having a lot of success. He was surfing these boards on these little waves and stuff he'd find, but, um, I still couldn't really barely ride them just because I couldn't really ever f pop up fast enough, you know, and I just didn't have that background. And, um, and so around sometime there, as it went along, a buddy of ours named Earl Richmond, who, uh, used to own Colorado kayak supply here, he brought back an inflatable paddleboard. I, I'm going to say it was like sometime around 2008. And he was like, dude, you got to try this, you know, this is cool. <laughs> and so we started, I started stand up paddling and right away in my mind, the two things that clicked, you know, I was like, well, okay, Zach's making these boards that work on river waves and this stand up paddling, this is just kayaking on my feet. You know, once I get my balance, I can figure this out. Cause I know what I'm doing. I understand what's happening in the river, but I just need to, you know, and now, if, now I could just come out of the eddy on my feet onto a surf wave. I could just be surfing instantly. I don't have to mess around with popping up and all that. So I went to Zach the winter of 2009 and I was like, Hey, how about this? I said, we just got a grant to build two new waves in Salida. Let's try to make a couple surf waves. And then will you make me a bad fish board, but will you make it bigger where I could maybe stand on it and get, you know, <laughs> basically a stand up board. And so he did, he made two boards, one for me, one for him. Did he call it the kook bad fish? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he should have. Yeah. It was actually called the ch the chubby stick. <laughs> and, uh, we were, we were advised later by our good friend, Heather Gorby, that that was, a uh, not, not an ideal name for marketing purposes. We had it, we hadn't really thought it through that much. <laughs> That's why you need plenty of women in your orbit to keep you, 
making good decisions. But anyway, so we, he made this board and, um, and we built these two waves, one called the office wave. Cause that was up at the top of the park where my office was. Mm-hmm. And one called scout wave down at the bottom water came up. I took the board down the first day. There was even barely enough water. I paddled out of the eddy, surfed the wave, stood there for like 15 minutes, just so stoked. I couldn't believe it. You know, I was like, it's totally working. And I called <laughs> Zach immediately and I was like, Hey, you know, would you want to do this together? Like maybe more people are going to want to do this. Maybe we should start a business. I mean, no clue what I was suggesting, obviously. Um, but it's worked for you before with the, with this light apart. <laughs> yeah, I guess I'm barely, but yeah, yeah. So we, uh, so summer 2010, we started Badfish officially and uh, we started all from that perspective of river surfing, but, um, but yeah, as far as chicken and egg, they were kind of, it was all born together, just a interesting time and passion for this thing we were doing. And we just kind of all worked sort of. <laughs> and you, you've definitely modified your building style for parks as well as, as, as modified the brand. So went from surfing on rivers to downriver stuff to, to building the team. How did Mike Tavares get on board with you? Well, Mikey T was, um, lived down the street from me in Salida at the time in like a house full of raft guys and kayak constructors. Um, and, uh, you know, I knew him from kayaking and just from being an Arkansas local here. He, he was a kayak instructor at the time. And I knew that he was a really good snowboarder and skater and, and I'd hung out with him a little bit, uh, doing that stuff. And I was like, right away, I told Zach, I said, you know, a guy, Mike Tavares, like, I think he would be really good at this. We should have him try it. Cause it only been the two of us surfing for the first, maybe few weeks, you know? <laughs> and it was like, well, maybe we should like, you know, product test a little here and see if anybody else likes this. And so he was actually the third person ever to ride a bad fish board. We just called him up or I got him and uh, said, Hey, you want to come down and try this? And so he jumped on, he was instantly really good. Like Mike T could, he was, he's always been really ambidextrous with his stance. You know, he could, he could surf goofy and regular right away. I was like, Oh wow. Yeah. This guy's going to be good. And so we just kind of brought him into the fold. It's just like a friend really. I mean, we didn't have anything to give them as a sponsorship. We just, like, you know, do you want to do this with us basically? And so, um, yeah, so he just came on board right away. So he's like original family, you know? And that when I had Brittany Parker on as a guest, she was mentioning around the 2012 mark. That's right. She, yeah. She saw some, uh, surfers on the Glenwood wave and was like, Oh, I want to try that. And there were a variety of competitions there where you were emceeing and you yeah. loaned her a board. She didn't even, you know, like, she wasn't able to get even into the wave on her knees. And yet you were like stoking her out on the, on the, 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 the loudspeaker. And, you know, you took her under her fold and now she's a, a leading ambassador for board sport. So, you know, it seems like uh, you have a, a a touch about you of creating things that have been quite successful. Well, I don't know. I don't, I don't think I get, should get much credit, but I think the, um, that I've been really fortunate that, you know, these, this, this whole thing that Zach and I've tried to create is, is attracted some really amazing folks. And, and Brittany's certainly one of them. She's also kind of original family. And, uh, my, the way I remember meeting Brittany and maybe I'd met her before that, I don't remember, remember exactly, but basically <laughs> we, we were going up to uh, 2012, we were going up to the local run there in Glenwood Canyon. It's called Shoshone. And for Colorado, it's, it's a real treasured whitewater resource because it has water all the time from a hydroelectric mm-hmm. project. 
and Brittany, um, Brittany was like running laps on it on just this like 11 foot epoxy log, <laughs> just this water logged, you know, whatever it was, one early generation stand up board in like a rafting rental wetsuit in a, in a rafting customer life jacket, you know, and she's not a big person. So she just, you know, she just had like this, this, this gear that was just like, but she was charging, you know? And so we were up there, we were actually trying to take photos and she, was kind of like, Hey, can I paddle with you guys? And I'm like, well, we're trying to take photos and you know, no offense, but you're not, you're not, you're, you're, you're not, you know, we're not ready to take pictures of you just yet. You know, you're and, riding uh, a huffy bike on a mountain bike course. That's, so, it. Uh, no. that's, that's it. That's, that's, that's a, that's a good way of putting it. But so basically, um, but she just like would not be stopped. She's soloing the class three run. And so we're like, man, you know, we better give this girl some gear or, you know, like now I feel responsible for her. And so, yeah, we, and, and Nikki Gregg had suggested that we, we uh, connect with Brittany and, um, and it's been awesome. She's been there for the whole ride and, and helped us in so many ways. And so, yeah. Spencer Lacey. Well, Spencer's Gary's son. And so I've known him since he was six years old. Um, you know, I've seen him cry over, uh, not getting the right breakfast cereal, you know, <laughs> and, like, and watch them grow up. And, uh, yeah, I mean, he's also, you know, family and, uh, and Spencer's just, um, I mean, the whole family is uh, very, you know, Gary's an incredibly talented athlete, um, continues to be at, at his age, um, in his sixties and, uh, his boys are also, you know, amazing athletes and Spencer, Spencer's just, um, I mean, he has just has a different threshold of pain than normal human beings. Mm. And, you know, he, he, um, he was a Nordic skier uh, collegiately. And, you know, if, if you're, if you've ever done any Nordic skiing, that's like the most horrendously painful sport on the planet. Um, <laughs> and so he, you know, what he, his thing was like, he's a really good, he grew up on rivers. He's, he's a super talented paddler, understands whitewater intrinsically from all his years on rivers with his family. He's third generation Colorado whitewater paddler, but he threw himself at stand up paddling, like in a way that I haven't seen a lot of people do. I mean, he would be out in the slide of whitewater course at like 400 CFS. His family has a place right at the top of the park. He'd be out there just crossing an eddy line back and forth, back and forth, you know, and then you combine that with his incredible aerobic capacity. Like he just dominated races right away. I mean, Mike T and him have had some good battles, but Spencer when he's on, you just can't be touched, you know? And then, uh, and then he's also incredibly bold and hopefully he's mellowing out as he's getting older. You know? <laughs> Cause I, I've seen, uh, the years that he's taken off his mother's life with, uh, some of his antics, but, um, he's, he's, uh, yeah, he's, he's just family, you know, I don't know. I mean, he's, he's that's how only way I can describe it. You know, I'm just known him since he was young, love him as an adult beginning to work with him on whitewater park design. Cause he's starting to work mm-hmm. with us as well. Mm-hmm. So it's just fun. It's fun to be, be, have been there for, for his whole, uh, you know, youth. I've noticed that if anybody knows a single name in river paddleboarding, it's, it's typically Spencer Lacey because of his antics in Alaska, sliding down icebergs or dropping waterfalls or wearing clown suits or whatever the costume he's wearing on Grand Canyon trips or naked. Like he's run some pretty stuff naked too. Yeah, he is. And the thing, if you know, Spencer is like, he's not, I mean, he just, that's just him. 
And so it just <laughs> happened to be that while he's doing things that occur to him naturally, if someone's holding a camera, it becomes a viral video or photo, <laughs> but it's not because he's super calculated. He just is that guy. Like he's going to just go ahead and take his pants off and run lava falls. <laughs> I wouldn't, you know? <laughs> yeah. and, and one more athlete on your team. Who's also family, close family person named miles Harvey. Yeah. Yeah, that's my kid. And uh, <laughs> he's 18 years old now. And he he was just kind of like we were telling the stories of designing the waves and the boards and the whole thing coming together. You know, Miles has been really fortunate in that he was born at the right time, you know, and, and he just has a real affinity for it. He When he was two years old, he used to um, – he my wife would bring him down to the whitewater parks in, in the evenings and we I'd go kayaking and he, they'd sit there and watch and – after a, a couple times when he was about two, he started climb, crawling over my boat and wanting to me to pop my skirt. And so I popped my skirt, he climbed in and we just started kayaking together that way. Um, and he would, he would want me just to take him out behind rocks in the whitewater park and run through little drops at low water and stuff. And then when he was about four, he started paddling his own kayak and then bad fish happened. And, you know, he's been so lucky that Zach has really taken him under his wing and, Zach made him all kinds of boards when he was young. He, uh, Zach would be a, uh, uh, for Zach, I think miles was a bit of a, like a, a design inspiration. So he'd be like, okay, what can I do to make a board work for this 70 pound kid or 50 pound <laughs> kid or whatever he was, you know? And so miles benefited tremendously from Zach's, um, custom board building. And, and then he just has a real passion for it. He loves, you know, he, Mike T Spencer, Brittany, Dan Gavir, you know, Ken Hobie, all these people are, are, um, they're, they're mentors to him. And he just loved the river culture so much. He just, he's just been, it's been his sole focus of his entire youth, you know? So he's, he's, um, he's got that perfect confluence of athletic ability, youth, you know, access to the sport and then really good role models that he, he was able to be around for this whole time. So, um, yeah, it's been a lot of fun for me. I mean, he's been better than me for so long that it's not <laughs> worth talking about how much better he is than me, but he's, he's a lot better than me. That's for sure. Well, so. at the, the, the big events, including GoPro, he's regularly competing against some of the, the, the biggest names in paddleboarding, whether it be river or whatnot. If they come to the river, he's competing with them and, and pony, I mean, for winning sure. or at least offering really solid competition. Well, so, yeah, he, he started when he, his first, uh, I mean, when he started, he really was interested in the competition right away, but there was no kids he could rate. He did a couple kids races and it was, it, he needed to compete against adults. And so he started his first GoPro mountain games. He competed in the adult division at the age of 11. And, um, you know, and he got his, he got his butt kicked for a bunch of years. Well, he had the skills, but he just didn't have the muscle and the, and then it caught up, you know? And so well, you said he was 11. He started, he started competing at GoPro at 11 in the men's division. And so he, he actually won it last year and he won it in the finals against, um, racing against Kai Lenny, who yeah. miles has one poster in his room and it's Kai, you know? And so like for him to have had a chance to win it and to race against Kai and to Kai to be so, he was so incredibly generous with miles. It was, it was, a uh, just absolute highlight experience for sure. 
if anyone's taking notes on the success for being an entrepreneur, a business person, and an outdoor athlete, you have to have creativity. You have to have a passion. You have to have a vision. And I think you're you're representing all of those and being able to inspire other people humbly to express themselves. I was influenced early on by like the skateboarding culture. It sounds like you were too, where just sure. Anything works. Like, me, let me grab this piece of wood, put some wheels on it, and roll down the street and do ollies or ride in parking lots or find empty pools or whatever it is. And so, like, that skateboard, that skateboarding media and culture really allowed people to be creative and do what they felt like they needed to do. So, I mean, you're essentially no the, the Pal Peralta of, of river surfing, no? <laughs> I don't know. That's pretty Stacey generous. Peralta. I can't, there's no way, like the, as much as the bones brigade and that whole thing meant to me as a, as a child, there's no way I could ever, um, put us in that category, but I will, I would totally agree with you. I mean, skating changed my life and, and for this, all the reasons you just listed and, and the people it exposed me to and the, and, you know, and, and, um, I, I mean, I've, I've never recovered in some ways from, you know, deciding that I wanted to be a skater as a kid, you know? Given these weird times uh, where people need to be outside, want to be outside, but uh, quarantines are still in place, I think more and more states are opening up. Uh, it's been a challenging couple of months. How is it to run a business, uh, both uh, a, a board sports business and be a designer for a whitewater park when things are shut down? If you don't mind well, talking a little bit about that. No, not at all. Um, well, it's been hard. I mean, clearly, um, March and April were low points. I, I mean, really for my whole life in a lot of ways. Mm. I mean, a lot of the things that I've been trying to do and building towards felt like they were pretty tenuous there for a little while. Um, but, um, and we had to do a lot of the things that a lot of businesses had to do in terms of, you know, pretty painful decision-making, um, but, um, but we're on a rebound and I think, you know, based on my understanding of what's happening industry wide, the whole industry is on a rebound right now. And I think it's, you know, I, I don't, I don't know that we have enough perspective right now to know why, but my speculation would be that one is that, um, you know, that this, this moment for everyone has really crystallized what is important to spend your money on and what isn't, you know? And so I think people, People want to get outside with people that are close to them. They want to do things that are promote health. They want to do things that um, that uh, provide experiences, not you know more material things. So if you buy a paddleboard, you've got what you need to go have a bunch of experience with people you love. And in ways that you know, if you're standing on an 11 foot long paddleboard, you're socially distanced. You know, you're good. <laughs> <laughs> Just keep pointing the nose at people. But uh, but you know, so I think I think that that's really. Um, we're seeing that industry wide. So I think the outdoor industry as a whole appears to be rebounding pretty quickly. And I think it's because people, it's the right, you know, thing for the moment, the right sport, the right activity for the moment. Um, that being said, we're not, I mean, it's, it's things got so confused, um, all the way along the supply chain, you know, to the getting to the end consumer this year, that it is an absolute scramble to try to, you know, get, get 2020 back on track. It probably won't get back on track, but, uh, but I feel really good about, um, that, you know, as far as, um, engineering of whitewater parks, it's a, it's a completely different animal because public fund, funding by definition, there's a lag. So when, when the economy's good, it takes a little longer for that money to filter through to local governments. 
when the economy's bad, it takes a little longer for that reduction in tax receipts to, to hit the local governments. So what you're seeing is some preemptive cuts. You're seeing local governments scale back services, certainly things that are far more critical than projects, recreational projects on rivers like schools are going to suffer. Mm-hmm. And so I think that public projects are going to, uh, there's just almost no question they're going to suffer over the next few years. Um, you know, anything that doesn't have dedicated funding right now is probably in jeopardy um, as, as we see this sort of bubble of lower tax receipts move through. Um, but by the same token, you know, maybe s- communities are sort of would will feel the same thing consumers feel, right? Which is, hey, we need we need parks, we need spaces for people to be outside, we need trails, we need things that promote health, you know. And so, can we can we find ways to even in the worst of times to continue that? And so, I'm optimistic that we'll continue to see river parks, um, particularly low head dam modifications, which is a lot mm-hmm. of our projects now. I, I'm optimistic that we'll continue to see those projects move forward. I just think there's going to be an inevitable uh, crunch in funding. Sure. Unfortunately, as like you said, everything, schools, infrastructure and whatnot. But I'm seeing, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, a lot of river parks are built around the design that you're removing dangerous river obstacles like low head dams. So those projects are still probably going to be continuing and parks are going to be, you know, redeveloped in that area. Maybe. I think so. I think, I think what you see is that these projects are multi-year projects that, you know, oftentimes, I mean, Dayton, Ohio took close to a decade to complete as an example, that was uh, removing a dangerous low head dam that had drowned several people over the years and replacing it with two whitewater features that they're, you know, they're, they're now river surfing on. Um, and so, um, a project like that does take time. I mean, the thing people have to remember about these projects is that they're public waterways. They're regulated by the clean water act. There's a ton of interested parties. There's a ton of permitting. I mean, designing a whitewater park is like 90% permitting and 10% designing the park, you know? So it's kind of like the designing and building the parks, the easy and fun part, the permitting is what it actually takes to get it done. So I, I think you're right. I think that some of these projects have, will have dedicated funding. will have long enough timelines that they'll continue. And I, I don't think it's a trend that we're going to see stop or really reverse. I mean, I think people, we, we built a tremendous number of dangerous, uh, low head dams in this country between the great depression and really like more like the eighties is sort of when things slow down as far as putting dams in rivers. And a lot of those dams were put in for very questionable, uh, purposes. Um, and so now you have communities reevaluating that maybe 20, 30, 40 years after a dam was built, looking at it going, you know, what is this, is this thing really serving us and could we do something better? So I, I think you're going to see more and more of that. And some of those building projects were simply a government stimulus for getting people to work. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I mean, I've taken out dams, Paul, that were put in to, to divert water for ice skating lagoons, you know? Like, I mean, just, they, they, yeah, in the 30s and 40s in particular, we put dams all over the place for just all kinds of reasons. No one was thinking about the the health of the waterway or users in the waterway. It was all like, hey rivers are a pain, you know, they're unruly, they flow downhill, you know, they get shallow, then they get deep. It's like, you know, so we want to make lakes everywhere. We want to make ponds. We want to make, you know, we want to divert water for other purposes. So we just threw dams up all over the place and you're exactly right. They were make work projects uh, following the great depression. A lot of them were, but they continued well into the eighties for, for a lot of times for reasons that were not you know, there wasn't a whole lot of logic behind them. Sometimes there's utility lines in them. There's, there's, there's real uh, public infrastructure associated with dams, 
but you can you can you can have those those types of things continue those functions still continue and have something that's better for fish better for the river system and better for recreational users we have a few minutes left i'm going to ask a couple more questions one of those questions is what is what is your sales pitch to a community that you're going to keep a, a river ecosystem healthy and improve potential of the health of, of the river by putting in a park? Well, it, it, it's, it obviously it varies wildly by what the specific conditions are in a community, but um, you, you hit on it earlier. You know, these projects are multifaceted. They're economic. There's a restoration component. There's a recreational component. There's uh, like a community values component, right? So, I mean, if your river used to be this place that people were scared of and you put it behind barbed wire fences and maybe, you know, but the river's maybe cleaner now from historic industry. Dayton's a great example of that, you know, lots of historic industry years and years ago, people in Dayton would never have gone anywhere near the great Miami river. You know, your skin would melt or whatever the mm -hmm. fear was, you know, maybe out here it was less about pollution, more about seasonal flooding. Oh God, you know, that river carries children away, you know, but then at some point you can switch that mindset and go, no, 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 this river is an unbelievable asset. This is what defines us, Not, you know, and so those – and you can turn that that thing that was considered a hazard for whatever reason into a community asset in a, def, in a way that it defines your, your community values. So that that's a big piece. Um, you know, the restoration piece is like, you know, we don't go build whitewater parks in the middle of uh, – you know, a national park or a wilderness area. Like if a river's functioning, whitewater park isn't going to help it function better. But in an urban area where you have almost every river that flows through any size community in this country has been impacted. It's just a fact. They've been channelized. They've been moved. They've been diverted. They've been dammed, you know. And so a whitewater park is not a pure restoration project, but what it is, is it's, it, it can provide some restoration elements while bringing people to the river in a positive way and giving people safe access to the river, which then creates an army of river advocates, you know? So I look at it too, as like, there's a social component to it where, you know, for a lot of people, you got to touch and feel and experience that river in order to really love it in the way you need to, to make good decisions in the future about protecting it. Your designs tend to be pretty organic. I mean, the, the trees, the erosion control, the, the rocks that you move around, the understanding of hydrology. What do you think about design projects that include bladders and hydraulics and adding uh, a lot of structure to a riverway like the, the bend and the Boise Park waves? Yeah. Well, I just think it, it just really depends on the community, right? So it, it, it's not a great fit for everywhere. There, um, you know, uh, operable surf waves can make, produce amazing features like they do in Bend and Boise. Um, and there's one in Denver, um, you know, but they also require a lot of maintenance. They're expensive um, initially and, and, they're a, and, the, and they can be a bad fit for certain communities. It, um, you know, for example, the Arkansas is a gold medal trout fishery. We have to be really hypersensitive to the needs of anglers and the needs of the fish and the fish people to regulate the fishing uh, community. And so, um, you know, there's places where it's not a good fit. And there's places where it's fantastic, but it's it's almost a separate thing, right? Like now you're creating what I would call like a skate park in the river. <laughs> and so that's like, it's like, this is a feature and we're going to have this feature be really, really good for surfboards. And it's awesome. And I think that's awesome. You know, but um, sometimes some of these projects I work on have to be very uh, multi-user centric. So we got to think about the whole cross-section of users. We can't, you know, and so we have to consider, okay, 
can we pass inner tubes? Can we pass drift boats? Can we, can, are kayakers going to enjoy it? You know, can kids float through here on boogie boards? You know, can, can surfers use it? Can river surfers use it? You know? Um, and, and then we have to make that pitch in a very holistic way. So I just think it's, it just depends on the community. So, I mean, if a place can come in and go, yeah, we want a four foot high surf wave right here. We, we don't, we're not really concerned about anything else then, you know, and they can afford millions of dollars in capital construction, uh, costs. And yeah, you should, you know, go put bladders and stuff in there. Yeah. I'm all about it. You're definitely a practical visionary. I have the, the sense, you know, the, the things that you build are based on your vision and maybe your know-how, maybe not your know-how, but like, let's figure it out while doing it. A board brand, uh, a whitewater park, being a father, mm-hmm. what is your magic ball prediction of the, the future of, of river board sports in particular? Yeah. Well, before I answer that, like that, we call that reading and running, right, Paul? I mean, that's, like, that's what whitewater paddlers do, man. We just catch the first eddy, look over our shoulder and then go, okay, there's another eddy down there. I'll just get to that one. And then, you know, we'll sort it out. We'll get to the bottom, you know, it's go all, it's going downhill anyway. Like why, you know, so I don't know. There's my, there's my, uh, trite metaphor for the day, catching the eddy, uh, all that. Right. Um, I was one of those guys that got married with the cliche, the kayaker that officiated my wedding and made a bunch of kayaking metaphors, you know, future. Um, I mean, I think this stuff is just growing like crazy. I mean, I saw the, um, I saw the whitewater kayaking bubble kind of come and burst and, and whitewater kayaks is in a really healthy place, but but it's, it's, it's a different thing than what we imagined it would be 15 years ago. And, um, you know, in whitewater kayaking is awesome, but it, the learning curve is pretty tremendous and the investment in time and, and equipment and, and know-how and logistical know-how is, is always going to be a steep hill to climb for a lot of people. So giving a, you know, giving a kid a bodyboard and a PFD and a helmet and some river shoes or whatever you need to go out and play around in the river. And that's what we see in Salida. And we have a huge crew of kids that just bodyboard and swim in the whitewater park. And they know all kinds of stuff about whitewater because they know how to catch eddies. They know how to run through the holes. They know how to, like, they know if they pop underneath the water from a hole, when they're going to come back up. So they're, they're river people. They just don't have the the financial wherewithal, the logistics, the whatever it takes to become a, a really advanced river user. So I think whitewater parks and board sports on rivers are just, I don't think, I know they're just growing the, the population of river users exponentially. And I think that'll just continue. Um, and river surfing has been exploded. There's all kinds of now surf waves all over people, lots of people interested. I mean, who doesn't want to be a surfer, right? There's a reason why there's a, there's a reason why there's a pack sun in every mall in the Midwest. It's because even, you know, people want to wear board shorts and be surfer. I mean, it's, the, it's arguably one of the most iconic things in our culture. So I think river surfing has tons of appeal. And I think stand, stand up paddling is undeniable too, because um, of what we all know, right. It's, 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 it's an awesome way to move your body. It's an awesome perspective on nature. It's uh, it's, it's a thing you can do with all sorts of different people. I mean, my mom likes to stand up paddle and she's in her mid seventies, you know, and you know, so I can paddle with my mom and my kids and, you know, and so I, I think, I think all, all those things are, are just really on a growth curve and, and it's exciting to, to have the opportunity to be a part of it in some way. Thank you so much. I never really thought about PacSun in, in the, the <laughs> malls. It is arguably one of the most iconic images. Just the idea of like as little stuff 
as possible walking into the sunset aboard some shorts and human capabilities, you know, just stripped down. That's right. Yeah, I think so. On the river, you need a little bit more gear, some insulation, some shoes, helmet, PFD. Yeah, but the feeling's the same, right? Standing there after a session and you're dripping wet and it's like, it's, it's, it's awesome. You know, it's a, I think it's really connecting to the same thing. And I've liked some of your marketing recently that includes like a one wheel or a bike and your skate going down to the wave and just having a session with young people and, you know, really... Uh, all of those things, the the one wheel in particular, are not cheap. But you know, it's it's stripped down and be mobile, be active, be outside. And in a in a time of quarantine where we're focused on virtual communications, sometimes yep. you just need to be local but outdoors and moving. So maybe that's there's a reason why the 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 surfboarder walking into the sunset is is the the image that we all think about as an epitome of freedom and creativity and whatnot but thank you so much for your time thank you so much for the 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 history i learned a lot and i think my my audience will too yeah thank you paul get out there and do some paddling it's fun out there 